What is the key to wealth? Is there a magic bullet or a fast track? This year in the Wealth Standard podcast, my focus has revolved around these questions. Now, 2018 is almost over, as is season three, where we are focusing on the principle of property. So where are we? First, I chose the phrase life, liberty, and property because it's a simple way to describe the foundational principles to achieve wealth. What I came to realize is that there is a natural human inclination to be wealthy. There always has been. But there is an essential variable to consider when determining whether or not there is a key or magic bullet. That variable is the definition of wealth. Ultimately, what I believe we are really seeking is the combination of two mindsets. The state of mind that comes from being free and the feeling of certainty regarding your vision of the future. Wealth isn't simply a bank account balance or a dollar amount of monthly cash flow rather than a state of mind. Think about it. John Locke, the philosopher whose words we used as the backbone of this season, no one ought to harm another in their inalienable pursuit of life, liberty, and property, lived in a time period the mid-1600s, that's just impossible to fathom, yet the liberties he fought for would produce a similar mindset we are seeking when it comes to wealth. I believe that this mindset is available to all and is why I wrote the book this past year and also why I do this podcast every week so you too can believe that it's possible for you. Season one, life. Do you consider yourself your most important asset and invest in ways to be more valuable to others? Season two, liberty. What are you pursuing? Independence and freedom or retirement? Season three, property. Does your wealth strategy, including your investments, align with what you know or do you delegate that responsibility to someone else? My guest today, episode seven, of the final season of 2018 is the co-host of an insightfully charming podcast, How to Lose Money, which honestly, it's one of the best ways to learn about business and financial strategy. Paul Moore is an experienced businessman, real estate investor, and the managing director of Wellings Capital. So let's turn our brains on and get ready to learn. Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating the principles of life, liberty, and property. You are listening to season three, Property. My guest today is Paul Moore. Paul is the managing director of Wellings Capital. He's also one of the hosts for the How to Lose Money podcast. He is a recent acquaintance of mine. And I can't wait for uh, this interview. Paul is also the author of The Perfect Investment. So, Paul, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, Patrick. It's great to be here. Thanks. So, Paul, I, I had a wonderful time on your podcast. It was the first when I was invited to it. I heard of it before. But the theme is amazing. And I, I think it's an incredible opportunity for you as a business person to learn from the failures of others right through... Uh, the theme of losing money. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty fascinating. I told a story on it that I've never told before, really. And it was, uh, it was a great, great opportunity. 
But let's not get into that. I'd love to hear your background, how you got to the point you're at right now with your real estate investment company, as well as the podcast. All right. Well, so I wanted to be a parapsychologist in um, (laughs) junior high, and that went into high school. I'd seen the movie Ghostbusters at some point, and uh, (laughs) it seemed like a good idea, but I didn't have any counsel. No one told me, you know, hey, you really probably be good at this or bad at that. And so I found out there was no degrees in that especially not at uh, the University of uh, Utah uh, or out in that area. But seriously, I went and got a petroleum engineering degree, which just sounded like fun, drilling oil wells, but I never used it. I went on and got an MBA, and I went to Ford Motor Company for about five years. And after that, I started my own company. We had an HR outsourcing company, a staffing firm, and about five years into it, it turned out that a lot of publicly traded companies were interested in gobbling up companies like ours. And so I actually thought that when we sold our company after five years for almost $3 million, I thought, hey, man, we are really smart. And so I started investing when I thought, oh, wow, I'm an investor now. Semi-retired at 34 and I'm an investor. And you know what I found out? I found out, Patrick, that I wasn't an investor at all, and I wasn't at all qualified to make the decisions I was making. I I really confused investing with gambling, and so I ended up losing a lot of the money I had made in that company. But I did get into real estate, which was a great move, and I've been in real estate for the last 18 years. Yeah, losing money is one of the best investments you can make. Ow, ouch. Yeah, you're (laughs) right. And I would say we approach life knowing certain things, and We try to go to school. We try to gain uh, education by reading books or listening to podcasts. But there's nothing that's better education than actually losing and feeling, I would say, a level of pain from a human standpoint is an indicator that something needs to change, right? And so you experience that firsthand, as do most successful investors. What was maybe that early lesson that you had that woke you up to the fact that you weren't necessarily the investor you thought you were. Well, you know, I started losing money, like you said. I mean, I invested $100,000 with a guy who had this amazing foreign option trading thing, and he was showing us how he could make 3% a month on our money, and he was doing it. At least my paperwork said I was getting 3% a month, so 3000 a month, and it looked great on paper. Then I went down to visit him in Charlotte, and I just had this funny feeling. Something he said didn't add up with what I had heard about him, and I just had this gut. I actually went to consider investing another $100,000, and I left there with a distinct impression I should not invest more with this guy. Now, I wish I'd have followed my gut and just withdrawn the $110,000 or whatever I had in there, but instead, I didn't. About two months later, the FBI caught up with him. And you know what, Patrick? He still won't tell me and the other 2,000 investors where he hit the $18 million offshore. So even faced with 153 years in the federal uh, penitentiary, which he's somewhere like 19 years into now, he still hasn't told anybody where he hid the money, and I'm not sure why. But anyway, so those kind of things, and that was one of many examples of things I invested in where I confused investing and speculating or gambling. You know, now I think investing is when your principal is almost completely safe and you've got a chance to make a return. But gambling or speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And I confused the two and I found myself about $2.5 million in debt for those reasons and other reasons. 
10 years after I sold my company in 2007. So it was a tough time. So how did you piece it all together? Because I introduced you to the theme of this season's podcast, where we are really combining the first two seasons, which talk about the importance of understanding knowledge, education, experience, and how that relates to property. And that combination, right, is what creates uh, an element of value. And looking at investments or property, okay, you experienced investments that didn't create value, right? They did the opposite. So what's the, the determining factor, right? So you have seen successful investments now, I'm assuming. And, yeah. and so what are some of the differentiating factors between the investments that lost money and the investments that gained money? I mean, we've talked about it, gambling versus investing, but what are some of those variables that determine whether it's an investment, a successful investment? Well, you know, there's this guy on a TV commercial from the 70s, this little whiny guy, and he, he was sitting across the desk from this guy with this huge chair, and he said, son, we only hire people with experience. And the kid turns around to the camera and says, but how do I get the experience? Well, I think that the, the experience of losing money and the experience of doing a lot of these things gave me a lot of the wherewithal I needed to make money now and to make smarter investments. I'll say that lack of due diligence was a big part of it. Trusting one other person's word who was investing or who was paid to tell me to invest with them was helpful. Mm. Another thing is, and, th and this is where the experience thing and the reason I told that little story is, I was always surprised. We put together a lot of successful real estate deals through the 2000s and beyond. But I was always surprised when people would say, no, I don't want to invest in that. I don't know anything about it. And I'd say, well, you've got, I'd say to myself at least, you've got tens of millions of dollars, but you don't want to invest 200000 in this wireless internet project. And like, you know, Warren Buffett said, I invest in things I understand. I don't invest in general in the internet because I don't know where it'll be in 10 or 20 years. The internet will never change the way people chew gum. And so when I stopped investing in things like wireless internet or throwing money down the bottom of a, to a bottom of an oil well or things that had risk and things I really didn't know the outcome of, I began to do much better. The bottom line is, Patrick, I stopped swinging for the fences and I started trying to hit singles and doubles. And that's when everything changed. So tell us about Wellings Capital. I mean, what are some of the projects? Who's on the team? How do you determine who's on the team? I mean, tell us maybe the story behind how you put that company together, which has resulted in some successful investment. So Wellings Capital has three principals, uh, Wade Myers, Dr. Brian Robbins, and myself. Wade and I have been talking since 2007. He's a Harvard MBA. He's got a property management firm that has 220,000 doors under management. Wow. It's not multifamily. It's doing condos, HOA, POA type work. But quite impressive companies he started. He's had some big failures, big successes. And he told me he never really had any experience in real estate. He didn't understand it. But when I showed him a draft copy of my book, he read about four chapters and skimmed the rest. And two hours later, he said, I want in. I want to invest. And we just invited him to join our team because he's got, like I said, incredible 55 different M&As and those startups, acquisitions, et cetera, plus some failures. He's invested a lot of money in Hollywood films. A, a big recent hit was I Can Only Imagine. I don't know if you saw that, but mm -hmm. uh, he heard, was heard of the title, big money guys behind that. And so he's 
done really well over the years and made a lot more money than he's lost. My other partner is Dr. Brian Robbins, and he has been a serial entrepreneur as well as a pain management uh, physician. And I had asked him to invest with me in a multifamily project I built from the ground up in North Dakota. He said, too risky. A Hyatt Hotel, my friend built that I helped him with, too risky. Wireless internet, too risky. Something else, oil and gas, too risky. And when he heard about multifamily and I showed him the demographics that I think are going to make multifamily a great investment for decades to come, he was fairly stunned and he said, this is something I can get behind. And he jumped in with both feet. And what year was that when you joined up? That was about four years ago in 2013. So what is your take in the multifamily space now? Because I observed and I I have personal investment in several multifamily projects in various states. And I look at what the market has done even in the last four, four years and how much money has come into it, how much syndication is being done to either do a ground up or do an acquire and remodel and value add play. I see more and more and more as even weeks go on. How are you looking at the multifamily space these days? What are some of the conclusions you've come to? Well, first of all, we've concluded that, like I said in, at the title of my book, it's the perfect investment because it, it really does a great job balancing risk and return. You're, you're aware of the SHARP ratio, S-H-A-R-P-E. The SHARP ratio measures return divided by risk for a whole lot of different asset classes. And multifamily and self-storage are at the very top of the list. In fact, they're performing about 460% better than the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 in the return divided by the risk because the beta, the up and down of multifamily is just, it's just much more stable. It's much more predictable. You know, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, according to a report I read, haven't had a single foreclosure in multifamily in three or four years. Where else can you get something like that? We're talking about nationwide. And by the way, that does speak to the great underwriting and the conservative underwriting that they do. But multifamily's got a lot of big things going for it. Number one, in 1995, the government tampered with the housing market and they thought that anybody who could fog a mirror should be able to get a loan. And home ownership skyrocketed from its historical low 60s to 69.2%. And in 2005, uh, I mean, I had a friend who was making forty or 50000 a year who bought a $600,000 mansion as his second home. <laughs> he had no way, no business doing it, no way of paying the mortgage. It was before Airbnb. I don't know what he was thinking. And he lost that back to the bank in just a matter of months. But that was happening all over the U.S. So home ownership, when things turned, plummeted from 69 to about 63% from 2005 to 2015. And every percent drop meant a million new renters. But there are all kinds of other renters coming into the renter pool as well. Number one, baby boomers. The smallest group of renters are actually the fastest growing group. Hmm. And the statistics say, Patrick, that when someone, when a baby boomer starts renting, they'll never purchase a home again on average. Uh, the second group, of course, is millennials. That's the largest demographic group in U.S. history with about 80 million strong. And in general, they don't really see the reason to be tied down to a 30-year contract on a seemingly overpriced home when they might have new friends, new opportunities, new jobs in another part of the city or the state or the country next year. So yeah, they're much more transient. 
much more transient and they have much more debt as well. So yes, they're not in a position debt. with the, you know, slightly more difficult qualifications than 2005 how uh, standards to qualify for a mortgage. They're not quite there. So on average, even though millennials are starting to get married, starting to move into homes, on average, they rent far more and for far longer than baby boomers and historically. And then third, we've got immigration. Immigration is still playing a very significant and increasing role in the U.S. demographic picture. And immigrants Again, they rent more often and for longer than people born in the U.S. So I think we can look out for many, many years and say that this is a great investment. And again, in my book, I called it the perfect investment because it seemed to balance. It was property, which is obviously a big thing, and you own a hard asset. You get all the tax benefits. There's 12 significant tax benefits you get from owning real estate directly. And uh, so you get that and you get this fairly stable, fairly predictable, single or double typically, although a lot of multifamily syndicators have been hitting home runs for a long time. I see that really coming to a place where maybe that won't happen anymore. And, And I'm even wondering why are people, how are people affording and why are people even investing in multifamily right now? Because honestly, the perfect investment is no longer perfect, Patrick, if you can't find a deal that makes sense. Yeah. And that's where I was going to go because I would say what I talked about on your show was the product could make all the sense in the world and there could be the right cap rates. There could be the right market. Doesn't mean the investment is actually going to be successful or the apartment complex is going to be successful. So my first question is going to be around not necessarily the market or the metrics that you do diligence on, Okay, but how do you know you're working with the right person? And then the second thing is, you know, there were a lot of apartment investors back in 2007, 2008. And so I know in the the single family market, why people were leaving their homes. And another tangent, really interesting is, and this came from the chief economist at Fannie Mae, where people during 2008, 2009, weren't even in default, but leaving their homes because Fannie Mae went into bankruptcy, right? Or was taken into receivership. Just because of that, people thought that they had to leave their house. Anyway, that's another side issue. My underlying question is, what constitutes a good investment? Not necessarily from the return and cap and market standpoint, but the operator standpoint. Maybe talk to us about how important that team is. Yeah. So we think that the correct, the right property manager and the right market make up about two-thirds of the likelihood of success in buying a multifamily asset. So it's incredibly important to have a market that's large enough to support multiple significant national or regional property managers. Because if you might have one that goes south, and we've had that happen, you want to have other options. So that's one thing, the property manager. Okay. Going back to more of the philosophical level, Patrick, I think it's incredibly important. I think we have a built-in, in our design, I think we have a built-in gut check thing, like the guy I invested $100,000 with in Charlotte 19 years ago. You know, we, I think we have a built-in gut check. I think it's incredibly important to follow your gut. Now, I don't know about you, but I know you're married, and if you're like me, your wife might have better instincts in some ways than you. She may not know anything about business, and my wife doesn't, but she can somehow spot a phony or a fraud and say, I don't know why. Well, I want reasons. I, want, I don't know why. I just don't think you should invest with them. 
And so I think we need to learn to listen to our gut. And sometimes it sounds like the voice of our wives. Have you done that with your wife? Had her do kind of gut checks with the people that you're doing business with? Oh, yeah. I ignored her many times. No, seriously. <laughs> um, I did. Those were some of the things I lost money on. The wireless internet company in North Dakota that we started, several of us started that company. She's like, I don't think that's going to work. Oh, come on. It's got to work. Let me show you. I thought we were going to make a huge profit in the third month. And here we are seven years into it, shutting it down. But there are other times I have listened. And now I eagerly seek her out. Even if she doesn't meet the people in person, I just lay it all out for her. And I try to get her feedback. And I, and I think now that I don't, that, that she knows I listen, I think she's way more likely just to try to take a deep breath and be reasonable and not let fear drive her, which she mm -hmm. had some in the past. And that's why I was able to discount her advice, I said, well, that's just fear. I'm not listening. And that was just not a great thing. And she didn't go with me on that trip to Charlotte. But, you know, if she had, I know she would have seen through that guy. Well, that's an, honestly, I've had my wife be part of business discussions and retreats and offsites. But as far as bringing on key people, I've never had her involved. And I'm that, that's actually an incredible idea. And I think it obviously depends on your spouse and their knowledge of people in business investment and so forth. But yeah. still, it's like, yeah, I think I would definitely agree that uh, she is a great, she's one to understand body language and understand yeah. tonality at a level that it's in, almost instinctive, as you said. Hmm, it's interesting. Well, I mean, I think that there are like 3,000 signals we send off between tone, eyebrows, and body language and all this stuff. And our, we don't consciously know what those things are, but I think our brain at a very deep level, make, I mean, it can make 40 trillion, no, 40 quadrillion calculations per second. Yeah. So I think our brain at a very deep level, and then there's some quantum physics involved that I don't understand, allows us, and especially I think our wives in general, to uh, be able to see things in a deeper and a, a more sensible way than we do. I've found that over the years, I've often shut that part of me off because on paper, it looked like such a good profit. And the wireless internet was a perfect example. It was, frankly, it was just a little bit of greed on my part, maybe a lot of greed. It was one of the worst investments I ever made of time and money. Yeah. The balance of human emotions. That's a game I think we'll always be playing. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's maybe talk through then, you know, some of the elements of your book, because using the word perfect, okay, it could be a slippery slope in a, in a sense. Yeah. So talk to us about how and why you chose that word to define, I guess, the core theme of the contents of the book. Yeah. So one of my favorite internet marketers is Perry Marshall. And we had him on a, as a guest on our How to Lose Money show. As, oh, cool. I think he was the third guest. And um, he's got yeah, a, a lot of people lose money in marketing. So Yeah, right. No <laughs> kidding. I just don't know which part I'm losing or which part I'm gaining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> actually, with Google AdWords, I do. But uh, that's actually, actually a Lee Iacocca quote. He said, I, I know we're losing. I know half of our marketing is wasted. I just don't know which half. But <laughs> um, at any rate, Perry Marshall was a guest and he has a book called The Definitive Guide to Google AdWords. So I mm. named my book The Definitive Guide to Multifamily Housing. Mm. And I thought it was great. And everybody I talked to about it seemed indifferent or yawned. I had a friend who goes, you know, multifamily after skimming your book, it's like the perfect investment. I think you should just call it that. I said, oh, no, that's just too big of a claim. But, you know, I realized I couldn't think, and I didn't know much about self-storage at the time, I got to admit, but I couldn't think of any investment I'd ever seen. And I was a couple of years into this that was a better investment with a better balance of risk and return. So that's why I had the audacity 
to name it that. And it's actually selling quite well. I just don't know what to do with my next book because I might write a book on self-storage someday. And I, what do I call that? You know, how do I top this one? But anyway, the perfect investment gets into, you know, a lot of people on bigger pockets, which is ultimate forum for real estate investors with a little over a million strong. A lot of people want to come in. They want a house hack. They want to be a single family landlord. They want to build up a portfolio of a hundred single family homes. And they don't realize the incredible toll it takes emotionally and in every other way on you to do that. And I've seen one person after another who gets up to 10 or 20 single family rentals of whether they're duplexes or whether they're mobile homes or whatever, they just, they just sell it off, sell off the portfolio in frustration. And they, they never really make any money to speak of because there's so many hassles involved. And so my argument in the book is there's a better way. There's a better way than dealing with toilets, tenants, and trash, and that is to uh, invest with a great, trustworthy syndicator. And so the book goes through all the different reasons. Multifamily is a great investment, as I already laid out, and then uh, a lot of the demographics, a lot of the reasons Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae love it, and then uh, how to find a great syndicator using that same test, that gut level test I mentioned earlier. So that's, that's pretty much what the book's about. And the great, one of the great things toward the end is uh, I talk about a couple things. Number one, I talk about the various tax savings that commercial real estate provides, which are incredible. And also I talk about my big why, which is kind of my why I'm doing this at the very end. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the Trump tax cuts and a lot, well, a lot of the stuff that went through a lot, there's uh, some big benefits to investors, especially in commercial yeah, it's very true. So, in fact, I just remembered this. A friend of mine showed me how you could take $20 million and turn it into $211 million and throw off $130 million in cash flow over 20 years. And he said, you know, I mean, where can you else can you get returns like this? And I was kind of like, wow, that's amazing. He said, but guess what? He said, if you play your cards right, this investor, this passive investor might pay virtually zero in taxes over those two decades. Yep. What? Let's uh, maybe end with this kind of loaded question in a sense. So your podcast, which I think is, again, fascinating, and some of the topics are fascinating. I'm going to definitely start listening because I'd see the biggest lessons, the best lessons in failure, especially when, when money is lost. But as you have experienced, how many shows is it now? Hundred over, over 130 shows. So you've learned firsthand a hundred ways that people are losing money. So what are... What are maybe some of the primary lessons you've taken from that and applied to your businesses? Oh, man, so many. It's great because it's a weekly reminder, Patrick, of what not to do. And I think that's a key for this, and that is this. You know, I could tell you how we grew our company and sold it for $3 million in just under five years in Detroit, and that was great, and that seemed really smart and everything, but... I couldn't replicate that. And if I heard that story, if you heard that story from me, it just worked out really, really well. The timing, the relationships, all these things, there's no way to easily replicate that. And so the lessons I learned from that and the lessons I could teach from that were pretty small. But if I hear all these guests and if they hear me talking about how I lost half a million or how one guest lost $70 million, man, I can really learn. I can say, oh, okay, I'm not going to do that. So failure is much easier to avoid than success is to copy, I think. 
I think, you know, people like Tony Robbins, I'm just thinking right, right now, might say, oh, no, no, I can show you how to get success. And I, I agree that that's a point as well. But for me, it's been easier to replicate not failing than it is succeeding, I think. One lesson we've learned is lack of due diligence, just jumping in quickly, falling in love with the property. A lot of our investors, a lot of our how to lose money uh, guests are real estate investors. For some reason, a lot of them seem to lose a lot of money in 2007, 8, and 9. And that's when I was $2.5 million in debt. Thankfully, that was all tied to real estate. So I was debt-free 13 months later, right in the middle of the recession. That was amazing. But I should tell you how that happened offline. But lack of due diligence, not being involved, speculating versus investing has been another big lesson. Picking things for wrong reasons, like saying, hey, I really like the Buffalo Bills. I want to invest in Buffalo. Yeah, okay. I don't have to even comment on that. Not that Buffalo is a bad market. I just picked that out of the air, but you get the point. But it's, it's easy to do things like that. Or, you know, it's easy to justify things. It's easy to fall in love with the property. You mentioned Donald Trump earlier. Donald Trump, when he was about 30 or 40, I heard an interview with him decades ago. And the only thing I remember about it was he said, don't fall in love. It's so easy to fall in love with a property and then use every argument after that to justify why that's a great purchase. You know, we all do this with cars. We do it with future spouses. We do it with investments. I mean, hey, look, yeah, sure, it's got a leaky basement, but the kids need a waiting pool, right, honey? (laughs) it's, It's maddening, you know, the way we justify what we really want to do. So my thing on that would be fall in love with the numbers. Don't fall in love with the property. Try to be as objective as you can. Another piece of advice would be get great counsel. And I know, Patrick, you spend a lot of money every year on coaching and masterminds and all that. I do want to talk to you afterwards about where you go for that because I am just really starting to dive back into that as well. We've got a mentor. We paid uh, $25,000 one time for this mentor, and they've been worth their weight in gold. And that's in the multifamily space. And I, I recommend them to people all the time. We still use them, you know, four or five years later for questions. We went back and forth with them on something this week. Another harder to quantify thing would be what do you do with the lessons you've learned? And I could argue both sides of this. I've heard both of them on the podcast. So you've got somebody who says, okay, You just paid all your tuition in this horrible loss. Now, are you going to quit and start some new business? In other words, are you going to start out as a freshman in another business, freshman in college again? Or are you going to dive back in and take all you've learned since you paid the tuition and go deep and really use that lesson to expand on and succeed? That's one argument. Well, the other argument on the other side of the coin is, hey, you've got to know when to cut your losses and get out. And I've heard guests passionately tell that story of why you've lost enough and that with the wireless internet business. If we would have cut our losses four years ago and just taken the three or $400,000 loss and walked, we'd have been way better off than where we are now. And so that's a, another argument, but those don't seem the same. So I think years, age, wisdom, counsel, all that goes into the mix, Patrick, and we got to know when to do the one and when it's time to do the other. So those are some of the main lessons I think we've learned from our How to Lose Money guests. Well, there's certainly, I mean, we're in this information sharing world and you know, oftentimes information has a candy wrapper on top of it. And so I thought it was really 
refreshing to see your the theme of your guys's podcast and i was a, it was a pleasure to be on there because that's when yeah. things get real and that's where i think the true education is not by the shiny objects on the surface but what went on to actually create them in the first place but i would echo i mean there's so many points you've made throughout this interview that i would echo and i would say in the end financial tools whether it's real estate whether it's a stock or a business or some startup or venture it's one of those things where the less you understand, the less involvement and value you can actually bring to the table, the more risk you have. Mm -hmm. But I would say as it pertains to, to real estate, it's a fundamental need that we have and it's always going to exist. And so it comes down to not necessarily just investing because of that idea, but it comes down to investing in the people that are actually supporting and running it is where... I've seen the majority of issues. And so it's not just your failure to learn from, but one of the, the questions I ask or one of the criteria I have is I won't ever uh, do mon uh, put money with people that I've earned that have not failed. And mm -hmm. me understanding what happened and what they learned from it and what they did in right. those moments of failure. And oftentimes it's not even what they say, but it's what those that were involved as an investor said right. during those times. Because that's really what tells the story about things do go not as planned, which tends to be the case with humanity, that you want to know what their principles are, what their mission is, what drives them, what values they have, so that you can get a barometer as to what decision they're going to make and how it will affect the money you've given them and invested That's with them. That's great. That's you know, great stuff. That's so maybe you can end, problem. I'll give you the kind of the final word. You mentioned something that, that I, I wanted you to share if you didn't mind. But in your book, you talk about real estate, you talk through a certain details of your story. But one thing you said is in there is where you talk about your purpose, you know, the purpose of that company, your uh, why with what you're doing. So would you mind ending and uh, by sharing that? Oh, thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. I don't know how much you've heard about human trafficking, but people are starting to hear about it, thankfully now. But when I the Operation first Underground heard... is here in Utah, the big oh, one that uh, Tony Robbins sponsors and there's tons of money in there. The, the ex-Special uh, Forces guys. Oh, man, that's awesome. I didn't know it was based there. Yeah. But, you know, if you took the total record profits, okay, record profits from General Motors, Nike, Apple, and Starbucks, and combine those, double that number, and that's less than the what is believed to be the annual revenues from human trafficking worldwide right now. Are you okay? serious? It's a big, big deal. They say there's over 30 million people trafficked, and a lot of those people are sex trafficked. And so I oh want to gosh. believe, Patrick, that if I was alive 150 years ago, pre-Civil War, that I would have been fighting for abolition. I'd been fighting to free slaves. And if I would have been an adult in the 1960s, I want to believe that I'd be fighting for civil rights. Well, we've got an emergency here that doesn't get wow. headlines, and it's not caused a civil war, and it's not causing marches on Washington, but it's slavery, and it's a big, big deal. So my company, Wellings Capital, and I, we are dedicating ourselves to donating a significant portion of our profits to fighting human trafficking and rescuing its victims. And we're identifying organizations we can back, and we're already doing that. And uh, I'm also part of a group called Freedom Place Project. It's freedomplaceproject.com. Our goal is to build a billion-dollar office complex in Dallas 
use that as a prototype, and then build other office complexes around the country and basically say, look, we're giving 100% of our syndicator of our internal profits to fight human trafficking. And so um, that's in the works, and we're really excited about that. There's really nothing to do with that right now except maybe visit the website. But really excited about that, Patrick. And my goal is to donate a uh, billion dollars to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims through my influence and personally over the next 46 years. I'm 54. I expect to live to 100. Or 150. There you go. <laughs> All right. So can you give out those website addresses uh, again? And then also how, you know, if there's other news sources or feeds or groups that are out there that people can learn more about the human trafficking problem. Yeah, absolutely. So one I would go to is Exodus Cry, exoduscry.com. They're based near Kansas City. They've got an incredible gut-wrenching movie out called Nefarious. And if anybody wants to get hold of me, I'll send you a copy of the film. I'm friends with the director, and he's got 800 hours of film footage, and he's making a lot of films. He's made other ones since then, but Nefarious is the one that opened my eyes. ExodusCry.com. We also have FreedomPlaceProject.com, which is, again, in the early works. We're looking for a CEO to uh, run that company right now. And then my company is Wellings Capital. We're at WellingsCapital.com. Okay, perfect. We'll make sure that all of that information gets into uh, the show notes so that if you're in your car listening, you can uh, go visit the website, thewellstandard.com, and I uh, can get those linked. I didn't know it was that big of a... I knew it was a problem. I mean, you travel around and in airports, there are signs everywhere now to, right. to keep your eyes open and pay attention. Right. Uh, but from the number side of things, I didn't know it was that that big. Let me go from really big to really small. So we talked about Apple, Starbucks, Nike, and GM times two, right? Now let's go down to really small. One girl, okay, one preteen or teenage girl can generate up to half a million dollars a year in revenue for her trafficker, for her slave owner. Think about that. Think about what that means to that girl. Unbelievable. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing. I didn't know it was this prevalent and uh, this big. So that's interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. And at a minimum, you know, helping me be more aware of it. And thank you, you for what you're doing by dedicating some of your uh, profits to that cause. What are some of the groups that are getting together and what type of impact are they having? Is it slowing down or is it is it going to take uh, a while to eradicate? It seems like a social epidemic. Yeah. Well, there's some great group. There's one really well-known group that's rescuing girls in places like the Philippines. But the reports I have, Patrick, are that... of those girls are going back to trafficking, Uh, excuse me, going back to prostitution later. So it's a really, really tough situation, and now it's becoming more prevalent. There are more ways to kidnap these girls, and thank God social awareness, like you said, in airports and all over the place is going up. However, the problem, I think, is probably getting a little worse. Where's the concentration in the world? Is it is it uh, international or is it U.S.? It's both. both. Yeah, it's both. I mean, honestly, there are some statistics that say one out of every 500 girls or whatever will be trafficked. I don't necessarily believe that because, honestly, I don't – I mean, I know of people at the places I've visited, but I don't know anybody in my personal sphere or anybody that I've ever heard of personally be trafficked. I mean, I, you know, in the news, of course, but not myself. And so 
I don't know. I, I think it's probably more prevalent in other countries. I mean, this documentary Nefarious goes over some of that. Yeah, I know that there's uh, the Operation Underground Railroad, which is out of Utah. They have a, a documentary out uh, as well. So hopefully the awareness continues to rise. Oh, good. Great. Okay, well, I didn't really want to end on that sad of a note, but you know, but still inspiring that you are, are trying to do your part to make a difference. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks, Patrick. I'm really glad you asked about it. And, you know, hey, we all have a part to play in this. You know, Mother Teresa said, how do you feed? They asked her how to feed a billion starving kids. And she said one mouth at a time. So we are making a difference and good will prevail. I'm sure of that. Okay, Paul, thanks again. We appreciate your time. And thanks. uh, Thanks for joining us. Okay, Patrick, it's been great. It's been an honor to be on your show. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.